We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You'll have to forgive me if I'm off my best this podcast because I just watched the latest trailer for the All or Nothing documentary and tried to run through a wall for Mikel Arteta. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can bot me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Yeah, I, I watched it. The motivational speech made me want to run through a wall for him. Well, it turns out that is a saying. Um, you know, depending on who built your home, it is unlikely that you will be able to run through a literal wall for the manager. So if I'm off my game, that explains it. A few things. First of all, some people watch this on YouTube and, you know, I'm away right now. I go back on Saturday. So I'll be back in my regular confines uh, for the Monday podcast, which by the way, Monday will be our, I believe, season preview pod predictions and all the things we get wrong that we literally document. We put them up on the website so you can laugh at us later. I think we all had Aubameyang as our leading scorer last season. To be fair, I think he came pretty close to that anyway, but that's another story. Um, certainly beat out the other striker that we had most of the season. Um, so some people did comment that uh, I need a bigger microphone than the one I'm currently using. And if you're not seeing it, it's only covering half my face. I looked for one that would cover all my face. I'm sorry. I will talk into an actual balloon on the next podcast. Um, I do want to give a shout out to our patrons. The transfer channel in our Discord at the best of times, is a hot mess. And today it reached epic levels of discussing the randomest non-sequitur shit that I've ever seen in my life. An absolute mess of the utmost variety, fully ready for the gif where the guy walks in with the pizzas and everything's on fire in the apartment. Um, so kudos to those guys. I don't know how they keep doing it, but they keep doing it. And over on that Patreon is a Chelsea rewatch. That's right. We rewatched a preseason first half. Um, but I thought it was interesting. I thought it was instructive. We looked at the pressing, and that was good. So uh, that is the preamble. Now let's do the postamble. You never hear that, right? You hear preamble. You never hear about the postamble. And I wonder why. Paul's on Twitter. Pause my pencil. Pause. Woohoo! What happened to the amble? The the, the amble. I mean, there's the, there's only ever preamble. That's the point, right? Like like is the preamble just so good that no one ever remembers the amble and the postamble? I think it's a fair question that you raise, and one that we're going to spend the majority of this podcast talking about with Tim. You can find him on Twitter at Scoberto Tim. 
Hello there. I believe it's like preamble and I guess post-mortem. There's no pre-mortem, is there? Although actually, given what a post-mortem actually is, a pre-mortem would be a really weird thing to do. Yeah, we're the in the pre-mortem. We're in the pre-mortem right now. <laughs> like, you're not dead yet, but I'm going to predict how and why you die. I mean, I, I think that's sort of the plot of that Tom Cruise movie with the pre-crime division. What is that? Ah, um, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I remember the movie. I don't remember the name. I, I predict my cause of death is going to be I'm going to be hit by a Cedric Cross uh, full I mean, in the face, which, which I'd probably deserve given the amount of shit I give him, to be fair. Only if you're standing behind the goal and sitting in a seat in the front row. Uh, to be fair, I wonder if people will be more mad at me for not being able to remember the name of that Tom Cruise movie, which I love and watched many times, or the fact that I couldn't remember the name of Cyclops, the famous X-Men character and leader of the X-Men. So I'm just making a lot of friends in the fandom communities generally. Um, Clive not here today. Look, all I can say about Clive is he shows up when he wants. That's it, right? And that is for only 99.97% of all podcasts ever made. So, you know, whatever. If that's how he wants to do it, that's how he can do it. Let's start, Tim. It's light. It's, it's trivial. But weirdly, we're in this state where the season is encroaching. We're not really in a panic. We've done mostly good business. I, some people would say there's more to do. Some people feeling pretty relaxed. But wherever you're at, it doesn't feel really like a crisis, which is ironic given that both of our starting fullbacks are nowhere to be seen. But we're in a pretty good shape, which gives us the chance to – Talk about a trailer for a documentary. Um, <laughs> let's just quickly touch on it. I, I, people are going to want to go forensic on this stuff, and I understand why, but we did get a glimpse of motivational speech made after those first three games last season. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but we lost them in quite bad fashion. The good news is those games didn't count because the window hadn't closed yet. But all kidding aside, Mikel Arteta gave you know what I thought was a fairly emotional and interesting speech complete with whiteboard uh, notations. I'm curious how you react to that. I think... The dressing room is a place we talk about a lot without having much access to it. So any access we get is a little bit of color, a little bit of insight that we've lacked before. Do you have any reaction or is this something that you just sort of smirk at and move on? <laughs> yeah, it washed over me a little bit. But what one thing I will say is that, and this is something I've thought about a fair bit um, in the past, is us mortals and athletes, we're very, very different. I don't know if people have noticed that. Um, you know, they, they athletes live a very different life, but not just not only because they live a different life. And obviously, these guys usually were mega committed and disciplined from a very, very early age to be able to do this professionally to such a high level. But the thing is, just athletes in general, the stuff that we probably cringe and laugh at athletes love like how many I don't know how many like athletes in all sports that you follow on like Instagram for example but you know those like motivational posts and stuff like that that me I look at and think oh Jesus that, that's that's oh, I feel embarrassed for you but like athletes love that shit man they love competing they love you know they like things that make us cringe a little bit so I have to admit like listening to you know the Arteta speech there's a big part of me that's just like Jesus, this feels like quite entry level, um, you know, no, not even entry level, but you know, this feels like quite basic. And I reckon if I was in that room, I'd be squirming a bit, but that room's not full of people like me. It's full of like professional athletes who I think really respond to that kind of stimulus. So uh, yeah, I, I have to admit on a personal level, I was just a bit like, oh, this is this, you know, that this is like a, a little bit cringy to hear, but like, I'm, I'm Can I certain... say something on that, Tim? Yeah, sure. Like, I think sometimes we forget, maybe the 21-year-olds out there don't forget, 
but we forget what it's like to be 21, 22, 23. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you just at a different, um, at a different point where Mikhail Arteta is a guy with serious cojones, serious professional, brings a gravitas that when you're your age, my age, yeah, uh, there's a bit of a difference there, but like, Th- that you like how he tried to lump us into that, Tim? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm roughly uh, Arteta's a year older than me, so I'm in yeah, his yeah. age range. Interesting. Yeah. That's yeah, your you problem. Go. You're his peer. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. you've been where he he's been. You've seen what he's seen. But like, you're 21. Can you like? I remember what it was like when I was 21, 22, 23, and I was all up for being inspired. You wanted to be around people who knew stuff you didn't know so that you could suck it out of them. You're a sponge. That's why Nuno Tavares talks about how Chaka is the guy in the dressing room that all the young guys listen to. We don't get it, but A, we're not there to your point. B, we're not 21, 22, 23, 24. He's a you know, a big international for Switzerland, which is a big team in the Euros. And like, they just have a way of walking and carrying themselves that a 22 year old, 23 year old is just like, uh, you know, fill me up. Tell me how this works. What do I do now? Like they've just been beaten three games in a row. The world's collapsing. They're like, tell me how to feel. I don't know how to do this as a, like, I'm not ready to, uh, lead. And I thought, so I agree with you. I thought it was a pretty basic talk, but I also think in another way to deconstruct it, what it was was personal. It, like it didn't even fully make sense what he said, but again, it wasn't to us. It was to the people in the room. And he said, he basically said, I've been at my lowest ebb. My family, my club got behind me. Uh, they brought me from down there to up here. Um, if the world wants to treat me like shit, that's fine. I'll take this shit on. Uh, you guys go do your stuff. We're yeah. in this together. Now, it didn't really join up, but it did emotionally. He said, "This look, I'm open. This is me. This is personal. They fed off that. They went out and they performed. And yeah, that's that. like the interesting disconnect between us watching it analytically and them just feeling what he was saying, which didn't fully make sense. And his chart with the dot below the line and the one, like it doesn't make sense to us. We'll have to get Scott on the pod to tell us if that, if that chart was accurate and if he had his data right. (laughs) I I, I will say, look, a few things here. First of all, I think the most powerful and impactful and probably the part that resonated the most with the players is the very end where he says, it's my job to take the shit. I'll take the shit right? Knowing that your manager will stand up in front up for you and, and give you the platform to just go out and do your job is important. Um, Unlike say Frank Lampard. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and he lives that truth. I don't think he's really thrown his players under the bus. And I, look, this is the problem. A speech like that depends on the lens you want to view it through. Because if you want to see it as cringy, whiteboarding nonsense, like it's there for you. If you want to see it as Remember the Titans, if you've seen that movie, right? There's a speech, if we don't come together on this field today, then we die apart or whatever. Like, you can or see any given that. Sunday. 
any given Sunday. Yeah, the, the inches. Yeah. That I bet we those speeches in real life sucked and didn't join up and didn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. But by the time the script writers put it, like, and that's the problem with documentaries versus movies. Yeah, well, and and so here's the thing. I have to admit, I'm a sucker for feelings and sharing. I'm an oversharer, right? I'm a sucker for that stuff. And so it does reel me in a little bit. I think the part that res- resonates the most is his willingness to take the shit for the players. The thing I think is also have to, is worth remembering in these situations is there's a lot of players in that room that don't speak English, <laughs> right? <laughs> and they're looking at a chart. There's a dot, and he's up here, and he's down there, and they're like, what? <laughs> I don't know what's going on. He and seems you know, upset. <laughs> now he seems happy. I mean, it's, it is one of the weird dynamics of a football dressing room, right? Because I do agree with you, Paul, that young – Players who are high-performance athletes live at 110% of everything, and that includes their passion and their emotion for what they do. And so I think they will be very receptive to an emotional speech that motivates. I do think managers can motivate. Now, look, they can't motivate you to the point where you can overcome everything, but on a day, in a moment, you know, it can happen. Look, there's a reason teams come out of the dressing room after halftime and sometimes look different, right? I, I think those speeches can have an impact. I, uh, I, I'd I say, say one it, other yeah. thing, Elliot. Like dressing room speeches need to be really fucking simple. Uh, lots of managers say nothing. It, and players will talk about their calm, their kind of presence, kind of what they're transmitting. It was all about what he transmitted at an emotional level, which we kind of got, but we didn't get it like like they're in there wondering, what are they going to get the hairdryer? Are they going to get the big motivational speech? He just set the right fucking tone emotionally that says, I've been in deep, dark place. You guys were worried about me. I've just seen that my family, my club have my back. I'm ready. I'll take the shit. You guys go do your thing. Yes, there's a scale of this thing. And on the scale yeah. of the video that you've seen on the internet of the manager who slaps all his players in the face and Brendan Rodgers having three envelopes, I think yeah. this is somewhere in that range, right? The, the other thing to, be, to bear in mind, you can't pull this out all the time, right? Yeah. This is a thing you can do once or twice a season. You can't always be talking about your family and your medical condition as a child and your life struggles and how the team got, right? So he obviously chose this moment. He drew a line in the sand and he went with this. And we know what happened after that. We went on a run. Now, that run was driven every bit as much by good players coming in, players coming back from COVID absences, easier fixtures. But he chose that moment. He got a reaction and we built from there. So I think in terms of his judgment of when the moment was to pull that lever, Tim, it at least looks like a reasonable moment to need to do it. We have we have only pictures. I will say it makes me excited for the documentary in the sense that if you're sensible in how you look at the documentary and accept that it's going to be scripted to some extent in the way it's edited, that it's going to be narrative-driven, right? There is a producer who writes a narrative for how they want to piece things together. We are going to get access to aspects of the club that in the past have really just been the purview of either guesswork or access journalism, you know, and that's really it. Yeah, hundred percent. And uh, it reminds me of um, something Wenger said years ago as well, when we played Aston Villa in the FA Cup and we were two nil down at half time, and we won three, two. And they asked him about what he said at half time, And he said, well, I got a bit angry and they said, Oh, we, you know, we can't, you know, we can't really picture that. And he said, well, the thing is you can't do it often. He said, 
really once a season, maybe twice maximum. Otherwise, it has no impact. And yeah, exactly. It's probably the same there. And again, if you've just seen that trailer and you extrapolate, I mean, and, and maybe this is true, maybe Arteta makes big speeches like that all the time. And this was just the one they chose to throw in to the documentary. I kind of doubt it. But but yeah, exactly. As a lever, you can only pull once or twice. Um, and it reminds me as well of... To that um, point, try it with your kids, Tim, right? Like yeah. if, you, if you're someone who raises your voice and yells at your kids yeah. all the time, very, very quickly. Yeah, they don't care. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, it reminds well, me on, of another... Unless you keep having levels you can go higher and higher in, that's how I parent. <laughs> I'm currently at only this a dog screeching here. like yeah. a lunatic. <laughs> but there was also, um, there was a famous speech by Bertie Mee um, towards the end of the 70-71 season where Arsenal, you know, were on the verge of the league title in the cup final. And he apparently gave this very famous speech, which he, like Bertie Mee was always, he left the speeches to Don Howe um, kind of thing. And he was a much quieter, more surly figure. But he gave the speech that all the players from that team talk about where he said, look, I'd never usually say this, but for the next three weeks, like we've got a chance to make history. I want you to like your families come second, like this comes first, just for this three weeks. And I'll, I've never said that before, and I'll never say it again. And the fact that they've all spoken about it, and I've heard this anecdote a million times, tells you how impactful that was at that moment, precisely because he wasn't a man given to these kind of grandiose speeches. And and in fact, one of the the big. Um, not to turn this podcast into like a history lesson, but one of the big innovations that Bertie Mee had with the team, because he wasn't much of an orator, they used to have a little room in the um, in the tunnel at Highbury called the Halfway House, and they used to go in there for their Monday morning meetings. Now, I, I'm not sure this would work in 2022, but in 1970 it did. And basically, they'd all ball each other out. Um, so they'd talk about the game on the Saturday and they'd be like, you, you, you weren't putting it in. You didn't get stuck in. You weren't marking. They'd basically just have a big argument, but then it would all be out. And then they'd like emerge. It was like this little room that was just like all their shit from the weekend. They didn't hold any of it back. They let all let it out. And then they all came out of that room, best friends. And it kind of stayed in there. And there's, you know, there's like a yeah. or at least there was like i say probably in 2022 probably wouldn't work as well but you know th- there's a value in that there's a value in showing both your vulnerability as a leader and then there's a value in like in then encouraging others you know to yeah. show theirs yeah. with the 2022 player they've like a small petting zoo with a a small like <laughs> sheep and a lamb and a bunny rabbit i i think the other thing too, right, is that how you manage a group is going to depend a little bit on the makeup of that group and, you know, like how Arsene Wenger would have needed to manage the Invincibles versus this very young group that Arteta has. Like that's going to take a little bit of something different. I'll be kind of excited to watch that dynamic develop. So, okay, I think we can set that aside for the moment. We'll hit a quick rumor, Paul. It's it's pretty much crickets out there, but the one rumor that is sort of circling is... Uh, Tavares now maybe to Marseille. I have to just say to someone who I think is struggling and going through a hard time and may need help to the GFFN Twitter account. Like we get it. <laughs> At some point, Arsenal wronged you and you're hurting. Like we we can do something about this. But like every single tweet is like such and such team is signing such player player I've never heard of. Wasn't interested in the project at Arsenal. 
And I'm like, well, we're just catching strays from that account left and right. He's still tweeting out that like Saliba's going to go back to Marseille, not interested in us. And now it's like, I, I don't know, man. It just, it's a bit tragic. But there, there do seem to be rumors of a Tabarez loan deal, a couple different places. Um, I think Italy is where it's going to wind up being. You know, Atalanta, I think, was mooted. Marseille is now being in discussion. Paul, he's a player that I... I have a hard time giving up on because ultimately when you have really elite physical capabilities, I tend to want to believe in that longer term. Maybe I need to be more aware of the fact that there's a lot more to being a footballer than that. But so I would like to see him go on loan and maybe come back. And maybe it's because I don't know if Karen Tierney long-term is going to stay at Arsenal, but how do you feel about a Tavares loan and, and sort of looking down the, the road of his future at the club and if this is the right move now? Mm. I'm going to take on my persona as an utter unfeeling bastard just for a bit of variety. I like it. I, I like all our players, blah, 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 yawn, yawn, yawn. I love Nuno. Great guy. Uh, fun, exciting, got skills and abilities. He is not for us. Um, I've always kind of sort of felt this. If you remember our review, I was doing my uh, Napoleon's Thirds, which is an actual um, – uh, misuse of the term, but when we did our signings, six signings last uh, summer, I said, you know, they all look shiny and new. I'm like, three will work out good, three will be okay, three not so good. Or sorry, two, two and two. And, and I was trying to work out who the two might be. And my first choice was Nuno, just because he's very raw. He wasn't even the best Tavares at his club in Portugal. He wasn't even the best Tavares that played left back. There was another Tavares who was getting picked ahead of him. So, like, I was open to the possibility, but he looked very raw uh, at all times. He's always looked raw. And when the uh, Arteta pulled him in the Forest game and there was a lot of head scratching, like, that was just my light bulb moment. That wasn't a bad performance in a bad game. That was Arteta's frustration from working with him for months because otherwise you don't do it. I just don't think he's an Arteta player. And once you you take that frame of looking at him, you could see why he's not an Arteta player. He's great fun. He's, he's great for another club. Um, he's got all sorts of abilities, but he absolutely is not a... Uh, and not, That's a not really for, good point. Not from a physical or no, no, no. It's a really skill good point. standpoint. From it's a, a really mentality standpoint, he just we, Arteta would never say go and get that guy. Not today, he wouldn't, knowing who the player is. And I love Nuno. A really interesting thing is the interview Nuno did with the beautiful football podcast, where he talks about his relationship yep. with the club, and him. No problem with Arteta whatsoever. What does Arteta say to him? Apparently, nothing. They don't really talk. Um, and he'd know that wasn't an issue for him. That's not how the, for him, that's not how the team works. He talks to Chaka, blah, blah, blah. They got the coaches, the manager gives them direction. He seemed absolutely, but he, he himself said he's not a very extrovert, outgoing kind of guy. Now you look at the Eddie interview on the same podcast. He says, I've never had a manager who talked to me more than Mikel Arteta. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Yeah. No, I mean, you've you've read between the lines a lot in this relationship, and I think you've been right on a lot of it. I, I think the reality is that for a manager who wants to play a style of football that's so dependent on being in the right position at all times and having a technical level, maybe mm-hmm. the fact that he's got tremendous pace, strength, you know, I think carries the ball really well. Those, those traits are valuable, but the traits he doesn't have may be the ones that are absolutely essential to playing the way Arteta wants. 
I don't think we have to go deep on the Tavares situation, Tim, but I'll at least I'll phrase the question in a leading way to try to tease out of you a little something more here, which is if I said to you two seasons from now, our left back position included Zinchenko and Ellipse, what's your sense on that? Because I'm not sure I have like clear line of sight to what I think will happen there. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I mean, I'd still say I think it will be Tierney um, because I think for it not to be Tierney, there's going to have to be big injury troubles again, which is not unforeseeable, but at the same time, that would make him quite difficult to shift anyway. Um, Interesting point, yeah. I, I think with Tavares, I think my take on Tavares would be, first of all, it's a kind of vindication of our new transfer policy because of all the players we're trying to sell, he seems to be the one with all the interest because like, a 22-year-old with good raw materials is easier to move both because he is more willing to move and also because there's more interest than like Bellerin. Imagine if someone had told you four years ago that we'd be struggling to move Bellerin. Like imagine if someone had told you in 2018 when we just signed Torreira would be struggling to move him. It's, it's, you know, these aren't old players and they're not like difficult players reputationally or anything. Whereas Tavares seems to have had quite a bit of interest. I, the, the Atalanta thing really made sense to me because to Paul's point, Tavares is a good player potentially for someone, possibly not Arsenal, but Atalanta with the way they play, particularly with their wing backs. Um, you know, I, I stopped short of calling them like a, a bit of a crazy team because they're a really good team, but there, there's a lot of chaos in that team and they use that, that like that chaos is their strength. And you could see someone like Tavares fitting into a team like Atalanta. And and the thing is, if he'd gone to Atalanta, um, it, it kind of feels like if he succeeded there, that wouldn't mean that he'd succeed at Arsenal and would be brought back. That, to me, feels more like, well, then we'd get some cash money for, from Atalanta. Not sure, yep. not sure what the situation is with Marseille. But I, I agree with Paul. I, I, I mean, it's interesting that they've... By all accounts, Arsenal have asked specifically for there to be no loan option included. So maybe it could be that they haven't given up on no him. purchase option. You mean no purchase no, option? Yeah. yeah, sorry, no purchase yeah. option. And but also it could be that they're just trying to create more of a market, and they think if he has a good loan spell somewhere, why would we tie ourselves to like six or seven million now when maybe we could we could get more? Maybe we could. Like, you know, the issue with trying to sell Leno this summer. Leno is not a bad player at all, but there's only one team in for him. So there's no bidding war. So there's no incentive for Fulham to try and meet our demands. So it, it kind of looks to me like maybe we're trying to create a bit of a market for Tavares, which I think is a perfectly sensible thing to do because, yeah. To, and to one repeat. other thought I have on that purchase option thing is the probably not very big purchase offers were being offered, right? It's kind of exactly. the same point as yours. Like if they offered us a 30 million purchase option, I think we'd include a purchase option. Yeah. But they're yeah, not. Exactly. <laughs> they're and doing to probably, us what they're doing. To, yeah. It's he's like probably three not million lose million. value, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. So, you know, you can well, probably sell him for that next summer. Yeah. There's always going to be, you know, when you're young and you're quick and you're strong and you're, you know, you have a physique that's impressive, there's always going to be people that think, 
I can do something with that. I, I think he's yeah. a player who will always have some value. Can I? Um, yeah. Can I speculate wildly on this? Um, just in the in the in the spirit of this being a bit of a preseason podcast, my my impression, completely uninformed, my guess is that there is a bit of a partnership recruitment wise, and I would call it a partnership now between Arteta and Edu. Where like, look, I'm sure they agree on the big targets, but the big targets I think are Arteta. I mean, to be fair, Gabriel Jesus, I'm sure Edu didn't need convincing on Gabriel Jesus, but you know, Zinchenko, maybe Fabio Vieira, you know, Ben White, players like that. I'm pretty sure that Arteta was like, I want Ben White, and my second choice is Ben White, and my third choice is Benny Blanco. And, <laughs> my, my. and then his, his fourth choice is the guy from Love Island who looks a lot like them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, but so I think like those signings are like very much Arteta's. I do think there is a degree to which some of the punts, I said punts, um, are, 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 can be a little bit more Edu driven. And, and I'm not saying that as a as a like as a criticism. And I feel like last summer, it, I, my my complete guess would be Edu would be was like. I know a guy in the Portuguese market, won't be difficult to get. You know, we won't waste loads and loads of time. I I know him. Should we do it? He's 21. If it doesn't work, we'll get rid of him next summer. Like, I I do feel like there was some expedience in this signing that that made some sense. Yeah, that's fair. And and Paul, bring you back on this just real quick. The thing I'll say is, I think that works too, because I don't think the punts are necessarily should be driven by the manager, right? Ideally, that's your scouting group and your director of football seeing players that they look further down the road, right? Their time horizon is longer. They see value. They see an opportunity, someone they can develop. You know, when you go get a Martinelli or you go get a Nuno Tavares or you go get a player like that, where a manager-driven signing is almost assuredly a player that he thinks slots in for me now and makes my team better now. So you have that blending of priorities, a director of football and scouts who try to find hidden gems, longer-term values, punts that can deliver value or, or, or potentially you know, become a star. And you have a manager who says, here are the guys that are a priority for me this window because I'm going to lean on them. And I think that that relationship can work well. But yeah, I agree. I don't think that those are driven by like a Mikel Arteta saying, I got to have Nuno Tavares to be my backup to Kieran Tierney. Paul? Yeah. So I think um, Vieira is the perfect intersection player. Um, I think Arteta fully said, I need this kind of a player. You know, maybe he described the attributes of Bernardo Silva and said, give me Bernardo Silva 2.0. And like, there's no way he knew about, well, maybe he did, Fabio Vieira, but not to the degree. And uh, Edu goes off to find the most Bernardo Silva player. And that's the classic if you ever listen to the Manchi masterclass on how to do director of football, that's that's the perfect prototype for the manager to fully specify the profile he's looking for. And then you send off your scouting recruitment team to go and watch him, understand his personality, everything about him over a three, four, five month opportunity. And hey, presto, we signed this guy at the start of the window, out of the blue, nobody knows about. That's how off the trail this guy was. Nobody else bidding on him. We paid the money uh, to Tim's point. Like it might have been Arteta who found the guy, but once they showed him the guy, everybody agreed this is the guy. No fuss, no must. They go for him. And um, I also think the really interesting thing there's been a big discussion point about oh, the theme of this m- 
uh, window is players who are adaptable and who can play in multiple positions. And I just wonder if we've got the cause and effect the wrong way around. We're actually getting, because Arteta didn't say flexibility, that's what this window is about. He said specificity. And like, I think Zinchenko has screwed our head a little bit and maybe Gabriel Jesus and the fact that we don't know where Vieira is going to play, that we think what we're going to get is players who can play everywhere. But I don't think that's what we're doing. I think we're getting specificity. Zinchenko is really interesting because he is like, the. it's true. They can play in multiple positions. So can Lionel Messi. So can any really, really good player. So yeah, that is true. Every great player at some level gets described as being versatile, right? Yeah, and with sorry, but with with Zinchenko yeah. as well, I I think you know, thinking about players who play in areas rather than positions is yes. is how I'd update my thinking about this Arteta team. Zinchenko, whether he plays left eight or left back, he's going to largely be doing the same thing in very similar areas. Yeah. I think. That's exactly right. And that's a particularly weird selection that I think has screwed up our minds because what they looked for in terms of specificity was a guy who could play full back well enough that he could be on the pitch to be the midfielder who was free. So everybody's like, oh, we're looking for players who can do lots of things. But no, we weren't. Same with Lissandro Martinez. We wanted a guy who could cover centre-back. That kind of spoiled us because, oh, we want a guy who can play three positions. I don't think we do. I think we want a guy who can play full-back really well in a way that allows him to go into midfield as the free man, as a Cancelo, and cover his full-back duties but be a great bloody central midfielder. And we've interpreted that as we want a guy who can also be a central midfielder and a fullback. Gabriel Jesus just happens to be really good across three positions. But we're also in for Vlahovic. We looked at Isaac and these guys who can play central and wide. But like good footballers can play in a couple of positions. I don't think we were going for a bunch of guys who can play three positions. We're going for great footballs, footballers with specific capabilities, specificity, and that also gives us flexibility. If you can play positional play, you can, by definition, play multiple positions. So maybe maybe there's no real point there, but I just think we have our, our filter for looking at the rationale of the window, maybe a little bit cart and horse. No, I, I totally agree with you that there's no point there. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like how I delivered that. I thought that I, thought I nailed that. Hang on. Give me uh, another go at it. No, I'm joking. I, I want to spend the rest of the podcast talking about the work that remains to be done this window for us to really feel good about going into the season. We play Sevilla on Saturday, and then it's Palace on Friday. It's that quick. It's happening now. We lost to Brentford behind closed doors, and... I mean, we tried to do a rewatch of that. It it didn't go well. Um, <laughs> imagine I, if you, know, you will. I, yeah, imagine if you will that we played badly and Arteta out. No, I mean, it, there's still work to be done. And I think it's ingoings plus outgoings. And I think I'd like to get your take on what you still think we have to do. But I want to tell you something that you have to do, which is get the right talent for your business by using Indeed. I mean, it's something you have to do. If you have a business and you need talent, and you're like, oh, I could go on multiple job sites and spend tons of hours and not really find candidates that meet my must-have requirements. And then I can pay that job site whether they deliver what I need or not. Sounds great. Have fun. Do that. But 
If that doesn't sound great, maybe instead use the hiring platform where you attract, interview, and hire all in one place. You don't spend hours on multiple job sites searching for the right candidates with the right skills. Use Indeed as a powering, hire, powerful hiring partner that helps you do it all. And you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements. And then you get to use things like Instant Match. You get to use things like assessments and the feature I'm going to emphasize today, which is virtual interviews, because in a world that is increasingly virtual, you need to be able to attract talent from all over, and you need to be able to interview them without the requirements of them having to necessarily come to some headquarters. And oh, by the way, you may not want to go there because you may not even work there. With virtual interviews, it saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent seamlessly all in one place. Indeed makes it easy to connect with your applicants. No need to install anything extra. You don't need to be a tech expert. Virtual interviews work right from your browser. Most employers said that virtual interviews saved them days of hiring time, according to Indeed data, and there's even a reliability assessment involved in the process. So do it now. Join the 3 million plus businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Sign up for Indeed now and get a $75 credit towards your first sponsored job, plus earn up to 500 extra in sponsored job credits with Indeed's virtual interviews. Visit Indeed.com slash BlueWire to learn more. Claim your credits at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms of conditions apply. need to hire. You need Indeed, Tim. Is that enough of that? Indeed. Nailed it. Okay. Let's talk outgoings before we talk incomings. And Tim, uh, there is, you know, a debate. And I think it's a reasonable debate that can be had among reasonable people without just slandering the club and being out to get them that we're not great at selling. And you see some of the players that get sold by other clubs that don't play any minutes and aren't very good and nobody's heard of them and they get real fees for them. And then we're like getting 8 million pounds for Bird Leno, who is like, you know, a really, really good goalkeeper uh, with a lot of experience at club and national level. And like, I, I get the frustration. Ainsley Maitland-Niles, you know, is that a player that we didn't turn into the value that we should have? Hector Bellerin, once upon a time, a 50 million or 60 million pound target for Barcelona, maybe getting his contract canceled. You know, we, we do have this issue. Pepe, he's got a post on Instagram that he's recommitted, which is just code for nobody wants me and I'm stuck here, right? Um, I'm stuck at Arsenal, help me get out is the, is the web series or whatever it's called. So like, Tim, let's start with the outgoings. I think there are players we'd like to shift. I don't know that we can do it at least with the return we want. Do you think the bigger problem we have with selling is an unwillingness to adjust our valuations to meet what the market's offering or a, a, a timing issue where we're too reluctant to move on players when the when the best offer comes along and usually just wait past their sell-by date? So, or both or neither. <laughs> I, so I think that used to be right. I do think that that's kind of changed. So Martinez, uh, Emiliano Martinez, that is, um, you know, good example of that. Moved him on with a bit of reluctance, but moved him on nonetheless. Joe Willock as well, moved him on, got good money. Um, but what does this tell you? I, I've been kind of, it, it's a semantic thing really, but <clears throat> selling in and of itself is not the skill. So look at look at like when people look at examples of who other clubs have sold, they're all young players. To my point earlier about Tavares, like, all right, Liverpool sold some guys. Liverpool sold like their academy players, though, like players like Solanke, who, all right, he came from Chelsea first, but Prospect was about, what, 21, 22 when they sold him. Liverpool aren't selling Oxlade-Chamberlain because no one will take him. They're not able to sell Naby Keita, even though that hasn't really worked out because he's on a big salary and he's a bit further along in his career. Nobody is good at selling damaged assets. Nobody. I promise you, 
go and look at all of the squad lists in the Premier League. I looked at Chelsea's today. Batshuayi, Bakayoko, Remen, Barkley, all still Chelsea players. Chelsea are shit at selling, right? But the players they have sold, Abraham, Tamori, Gwehi, Man City are moving on. Who are Man City moving on? Academy players. Those guys you can sell. The reason that Arsenal have been quote-unquote bad at selling, yet there's definitely been historically like a reluctance to move people on. And, and But this is around bigger players. Like we should have bitten on the, the Jack Wilshere offer when City came along. We should have moved on Welbeck. We should have moved on Ramsey. We should have moved on Sanchez. We froze with those like bigger deals. Squad players, mid-level players, nobody is good at selling those guys, I promise you. Just go just go on Wikipedia and look at all of the Premier League squad lists and I promise you that in ev- nearly every squad there are players you go, oh shit, I forgot he was there because they can't move them. Even City, like City generally, so... Another one of the reasons City and Liverpool have been good at selling is because they're good at buying. That's the issue, right? They don't generally have that many shitty players who don't work out. But even City like can't shift Nathan Ake. No one's taking 27-year-old Nathan Ake off them, who they signed for £40 million and have on loads of money. Even Chelsea wouldn't go to their valuation on, on Nathan Ake. So really again it's a semantic thing it's not the skill of selling there's not like some fairy dust that other clubs have that Arsenal don't in set in terms of selling the reason and I hope hopefully this should be if the plan is going um you know to you know Edu's strategy and all of that this should be the last summer where we're really struggling to sell players the reason we're struggling to sell those players is because they were bad buys mainly. So Torreira, not a bad player at all, didn't work. Bad buy. Pepe, ditto, bad buy. That that's why we're struggling to sell them. They're not even bad footballers. It's just they've not quite come up to the mark that we wanted. They're not quite suitable. They're on big contracts. So that that's the issue. It's not that like Arsenal are shit at selling. It's that they've been historically shit at buying. The Leno thing I mean, I think two things about this. One, I do think there's something in the fact the player wants to stay in London um, and and that probably limits options. But the reason we're going to lose Leno on the relative cheap, albeit goalkeepers tend to go for cheaper anyway, is because there isn't a market and sometimes the market tells you about your players, right? Fulham, like what incentive? Fulham would be stupid to just come and meet our valuation if they're the only show in town. Like, why would you do that? So... You know that that's that's the thing. There just there isn't a market for the player, possibly because he's not very good. More likely because there's the London thing in there, and that's something that Edu mentioned right in his interview. He said that London was a factor. London can help you attract players because players want to live here. It can also make them very difficult to move. Um, so you know, if Leno was willing to go to like another league or another city or something. Maybe it'd be different. You know, Leicester are looking for a goalkeeper, but if he doesn't want to go there, he doesn't want to go there. So, yeah, I, I, I think Arsenal have been bad at selling because they've been bad at buying, basically. And hopefully in the next few summers, we'll see a change there. And I don't think we've really ever fully accepted what, how much the money has changed in the Premier League, but not changed in other places. Like, our Shavin was our record transfer, and we paid, what, $30 million for him, right? That that would still be the record transfer at 
almost all of the clubs on the continent that aren't the big clubs, you know, like you go to the bottom half of the Bundesliga or La Liga or Ligue 1 and like their record transfers are literally like 14 million euro. And their highest paid player is on like 70 or 60 a week. Some not even that much. And so you start to say, oh yeah, well, what if we sell Bern Leno to the Bundesliga? Well, unless it's like a, a small cadre of teams, they can't afford it. You know, and that that's just the, the reality. Um, so I think we have to look at it that way. And Paul, I don't want to get too bogged down on sales because I do want to get to incomings. But to what extent do you think we we overfixate on these numbers now? Like, it's hard for me. I used to really, really care about our sales because I really believed it affected our incomings. Let's remember the last decade under Arsene Wenger. Our net spend was usually like zero mostly, you know what I mean? Or 10 million. Like if we were going to spend big, we had to sell big. There does not seem to be a relationship that exists that way. And maybe there will be again, but certainly not at this present moment. So like if we don't need to sell effectively to buy big, then I kind of stop caring that we're getting rid of Leno for 4 million pounds less than we should, right? In a world where, well, we didn't get the midfielder we need because Leno went for 4 million less than we hoped, then yeah, it's existential. But in a world where we seem willing to spend, you know, net 100 plus million in a summer, again, I'm not saying selling doesn't matter, but I'm saying that getting eight instead of 11, I, I just can't work up the energy to be as animated about it as I might have back at a time when that would have dictated what other moves we could make. Yeah, same. Um, It's other people's money, other people's problems. Like, I know it's our money. I know it's the club. I know it it comes back in the fact that you have less money. But we're not behaving like a club. Exactly. Who's balancing our, like, that doesn't sound very good when I say that. But we're not behaving like a club that's looking to balance its books in a particular season. We're looking like a club that's looking across, say, three seasons to say, where will we be next season and the season after? Look at the cost of keeping players around if it blocks a spot. And so you have a player who's not as good as he should be standing right next to Saka on the pitch or standing in midfield next to Saka and Gabriel Jesus and Martinelli and Zinchenko and Partey and Vieira. And you're like, Why would you have nine good players on the pitch and two not very good ones holding everything back? How is that anything other than a detraction? And like, we're going now. This is the the train is leaving the station. Throw anybody who doesn't deserve on the train off. When you've when you've dug this deep, when you've cut right to the the depths that we've cut, don't keep a couple of players around for a few million who are clogging up the works, clogging up the vibes, clogging up the spots. Arteta wants 22 players in his squad, he said. You can work out who the first 18 are. There's maybe 19. If we go through all the players, we expect that we would have wanted to keep uh, versus those that we want to go on loan. It's probably like 19. That leaves two or three players new for incoming, maybe a kid from the academy, maybe a rule or a patino steps in there. That allows us to get the one. Basically, it means all the people we're talking about need to go. They can't be sitting in that room because otherwise they, be, they should be playing. And if they should be playing, like the, I had a discussion yesterday about Torreira is a good player. 
we should keep him rather than let him go for very little. And I'm like, no, even if you could talk him to staying to be here, he's no longer fit. And if it, if everybody else is fully on board in committed, uh, and a hundred percent in and bought in, you don't throw in a couple of people who are kind of sort of bought in, just don't do it. Um, you're, it's not just individual players and the plus and minus on that player. And are you getting value from a player? Who cares? It's the collective at this point. We love what we've got. Keep it pristine and pure and clean. No wash, no bleed from the guys whose time has been and gone. And we've drawn the line. Let's not make the line fuzzy. Clarity is yeah. what we have at the moment. This is precious. You rarely get it. It's go time. Yeah. I I think that clarity of of who you know we we joke about being in the boat or on the boat or whatever the case may be, but like knowing the group that you trust that can perform at the level you need is really important and it's why I think the Pepe thing is a tricky one because it's pretty clear I think at this point that Arteta doesn't have him in that group but he's too big a player on too much money to not be used and that that does put them across purposes. And it's why I do think that there will still be an effort to move him out really any way we can. The one thing I will say about the whole, you know, Adu in his recent interview gave this impassioned, sometimes paying players to leave is an investment. That's great. Until you're doing it too much and with players you bought. Because if I'm Stan and you're Adu and you're like, hey, I need 35 million to buy this player. Hey, I need 50 million to buy this player. Hey, I need 70 million to buy this player. And I'm standing, I'm writing the checks and I'm going, yep, here you go, here you go, here you go. If two seasons later, you're coming back to me explaining why is paying that player to leave as an investment, I'm going to be like, what do you do here at Inatech? Like, you know, <laughs> you asked me for the money to bring them in. Now you're telling me paying them to leave as an investment. Now, to be fair, I don't think we've really done that with Adu's players. I mean, I I think we did do it with William. Um, you know, I think that is one that we squarely did do. But but yes, yeah, so while I agree that paying a player can be an investment, if you're the one holding the purse strings, you're not gonna that's gonna be a bitter pill to swallow from the guy who also asked you to write the check to bring the guy in. So you kind of gotta be careful. I think that's exactly right. And you mm-hmm. a bit like the earlier talk, you only get to do this once. But the other thing we have is it's not Stan, it's Josh. And Josh is in the mix. I wouldn't be surprised if this was as much Josh's strategy as Edu's from the way. Can I just say one thing on that? Yeah. I think we have all sort of kind of just agreed that now it's Josh running Arsenal. And I, I don't believe that. I believe that Josh is more involved and more visible. The sense I get from the interviews that came out of Orlando, I think it's still very, very much Stan at the top of the decision-making tree. Maybe not as plugged in as Josh, and Josh may go to Stan and say, hey, yep, trust this guy, or don't, you know, he may be the conciliary, so to speak, but I still think the Don, I don't know why I've gone with a mafia <laughs> reference here, but I still think the Don in this Arsenal relationship is is Stan. Oh, absolutely, but he doesn't have the bandwidth to worry about Arsenal. Uh, his heir apparent needs to take on the responsibility and grow into it, and if you're Stan grooming Josh to take this thing over in a couple of years, you need to give him his project, right? You have final say, and Josh knows that. But jo- like, you can't treat your kid like he's a kid at this point. He's going to hand over the kingdom at some stage. He's got to let Josh run a number of 
a number of the shows before you give them the LA Rams and the whole enchilada. You give and you let them make mistakes too. That's the other thing. If you want to be, if you want to hand over your your kingdom to a guy who's going to screw it all up, give it to a guy you've never let make his mistakes. So I think Josh has a huge amount to say. Uh, is setting the strategy, the policy, and then goes to Stan, and they have a chat about it. And with a few words, Stan will direct him a little bit. But he's got to let Josh think he's running the show by letting Josh run the show. Otherwise, in a couple of years of time, he's going to hand it over to a guy who doesn't actually know how to live with his own mistakes. Yeah, the only thing I'd say to that is, I know a lot of 74-year-olds who don't think they're anywhere close to the end of their capability of performing at their best. And um, I just wonder if the time horizon you might have in your mind and Stan have different look. It, I don't I do. have a strong but enough I feeling about it to get stuck of, in a- I know a lot of guys who handed over their empires to sons who frittered it away. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I've, and, and, I've and watched some a lot of, of Succession yeah. and... Uh, and shows like that. And uh, Newsroom, did you ever watch that one with Jeff Daniels? That's, yeah, a, that's yeah. a very good show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, so, so look, let's let's finish with, because um, I, I have to love with you. I've enjoyed every bit of this conversation. And I don't Gosh. know that we covered any of the topics I thought we would. It's, it's, it's one of the typical Arsenal Vision podcasts where we've we've had a good chat about, I'm not entirely sure what, actually. And when I'm looking, I'm like, wow, we're 50 minutes in. And I, I didn't think we had anything to talk about. And we still haven't gotten to the stuff I wanted to talk about, which, Tim, is uh, the incomings. It is interesting how you can be so sure you know what we need to do going into a summer and find yourself updating your opinion on that. I have to admit that I feel very good about the squad right now because we've had a good preseason and the last team we put out, I like all those players. But if you pick at it even a little bit, you start finding yourself with a Pepe in the lineup or a Cedric in the lineup or, dare I say it, an El Nenny playing six. Now, you may like all those players I named. That's not my point. It's the point that, like, I I have been banging on about left eight. I have felt it was important. You could convince me that between Vieira and Smith-Rowe and a little bit of Shaka doing, you know, maybe improving that position, that we can make it work, that people can move around. There is a giant glaring depth issue in my mind in midfield because the 4-3-3 that we play still feels very, very dependent on one guy in the middle of the midfield, and that's Thomas Party. And I just I just think that whether you like El Nenny or not, and I think everybody likes him as a person and as a team member, squad member, but whether you like him as someone who can come in and make this system work, I'm much less sure of that. Are you swayed by the idea that if we had to make one more signing, that that is a position of need? Or would you still go with like another attacker or a left eight? So, I mean, in an ideal way, I mean, it is a position of need for all the reasons that you point out. The thing is, I don't know how achievable what we actually need and want there actually is. Um, you know, could we do better than El Nenny uh, on the market, like for, without paying loads and loads of money? Uh, I mean, potentially, but how much better? Like, I, I do think that it just will be one of those positions where we have to cross our fingers. Um, 
And and you know what? Most teams kind of have to do that, except for like Man City. Like Liverpool did it for years with Van Dijk and their front three. Liverpool have since moved to uh, Spurs with Kane or Son. Yeah, I mean, yeah, every, every yeah, club yeah. Has, has a breaking point. You know? Yeah, exactly. And it's it's taken a few years to get to that level where they can sort those types of problems. So Liverpool now have a front five rather than just, oh my God, we've got a front three and let's hope we don't have to use Divock Origi for anything more than sub-appearances in Merseyside derbies. Um, I, I do think it is just going to be one of those weak points. I think that the activity that might still happen, which will be dependent on outgoings, is that extra forward. But I think it's—I don't think it's just about raising money from sales because I don't know realistically how much we're going to get. I, I mean, I, I really think that like Pepe and probably Nelson as well have to like have to kind of be out of the way for us to do that because I do think that piece. Is 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 maybe the next one in Arteta's mind? And look, there might well be a scenario where we can't move those players, and we say, okay, look, we got Pepe and Nelson, and we'll use them um, for the season. Maybe not as much as we'd use player X that we'd bring in had we sold uh, either one of them. But I, I always had the feeling that you know the the strategy, as it were, for this summer were to get you know get that centre forward in, get like the Zinchenko. All right, the Fabio Vieira kind of came out of nowhere, but I think those are the ones that they identified that were like, right, these are the guys we have to have in pre-season, Palace, first game of the season. And then maybe we've got one floating voter, as it were, as a signing, whether that's Tielemans or whether that's another right winger. But I think that was always going to be dependent both financially and in terms of personnel on, on moving players out. And I think in both scenarios, to be fair, I'd be relatively comfortable with them like going down to deadline day because I think we got the pieces we really, really wanted and we can just leave one one hanging now. Yeah, a couple of things to bear in mind too. If I was a director of football and I thought I had another move in mind, but it was on the sort of razor's edge, I think there's actually some incentive to wait to January this season in particular because Almost certainly, some clubs are going to see the World Cup end and their player banjaxed and their players worn out or their player not able to come back in the shape that they needed. Mm. And I think that January window, if you haven't made all your moves in the summer, leaves some arrows in your quiver to fire at the problems that you may not have anticipated because of the World Cup. But if you make all your moves in the summer and you filled up your squad and, you know, someone goes off to the World Cup that you weren't anticipating being without and you're without them and it changes your needs. Now, look, you could still do both, right? You could you could loan someone. You could make short-term move. You can, you know, decide to go into the market again because you're two points off the title or whatever. But as we saw last January, we weren't willing to tear up our plan to secure top four. Some people feel a mistake. Some people feel it was the right move. I do think this January it may make sense to see where we sit, to see how we come out of the World Cup and make that move then if it's available. And it may mean spending a you know a few million more because January is a tricky market, but we are a club with a history of big January purchases and big moves happening in January. We have done it before. We can certainly do it again. We've made loan moves that were impactful like Odegaard. We bought Aubameyang in January. We bought our Shavin in January. I mean, there's there's been a lot of moves done during that period. Um and, and you know, the other thing, Paul, that I think makes this tricky is it's very easy to say, we need a Thomas Party backup. <laughs> I want you to think in your mind of a player you consider almost as good as Thomas Party, who you're going to buy 
bring in, pay the commensurate fee and wages and say, your job's to be there in case we're without him. Mm-hmm. You, this, is the, this is why the Sambi Lakanga purchase should have, could have been perfect. A really good party heir, not quite ready to take over the position, but soon willing to be the backup heir apparent to him, maturing into his prime as parties aging out of his. The problem is it looks like maybe more eight than six, maybe not quite. And, and that can still change, by the way. Yeah, at this but that, point, that's the kind of move you have to make. Yeah. The, the idea that you're going to buy a tailor-made Thomas Party replacement who's content to be Party's backup, it's very, very difficult to convince someone to do that. Maybe you can convince them if you're City and you give them 250 a week, or you can convince them if you're Liverpool and you say, look, maybe you don't start in the Premier League, but you start in the Champions League. Maybe you're starting the Champions League final, right? Okay, fine. We're not quite there yet in terms of wages or in terms of competitive op- opportunities. So I don't know that it's a problem that's easy to solve unless you're okay with a Fabio Vieira or Sambi Laconga type purchase to be that guy. Um, so so where, where are your priorities for incomings? And do you think I've hit it right in terms of why it's easier said than done to say, let's go get another Thomas Party replacement? Yeah, a Thomas Party substitute is not realistic. A Mo, a Mo El upgrade would be possible. But we already own a, a Mo El Nenny. Uh, we have lots of midfielders. Um, I just don't think that's where we're going to spend our money. It's more likely we're going to rejig the midfield a little bit and say it's El Nenny and Chaka. And Chaka is sitting a little deeper, except when we're dominant in possession. When we're in possession, him and Zinchenko, Chaka and Zinchenko will swap around a little bit so that Zinchenko gets into the eighth spot. Now we have our more attacking player. We have some security for our midfield covering El Nani with Chaka a little deeper covering the that kind of full back space he drops into. I think we'll just adjust our setup and we won't be able to be quite as aggressive as when parties in the midfield, but it beats going out and buying a... El Nenny upgrade when you have and spending the money there when what we clearly need like we can't get away from the fact that that Saka played every game last year he started all but one game um we can't do that again we went big on Rafinha who can also cover center forward and we probably need another center forward option and it's probably not Martinelli and we probably need Martinelli cover like Rafinha he he was a little too good and a little too expensive in a way in that he has to be a starter. So it's like, where does he start? But like, we went big on that player. I think that's where we're going to go again. And that's where I'd like us to go again, because it can't just, you know, you don't want to take Gabriel Jesus, who's killing it through the middle of the park and play him to cover Saka uh, just because. So now Jesus is playing every game as center forward, except when he's covering Sat. Like, well, wear him out, and he's got a World Cup. Like, we're just too light up front. So I think that's right. That's where you got to yeah. put your money. And I, I, but I will say, like, I think the groups. If you look at them as groups, yeah, there's a lot of players in each group that I like. Right? If you look at the defense as a group, and you say it's White, Gabriel, Saliba, Tierney, Zinchenko, and Tomiyasu. Yep. I mean, there's more in the group, Cedric's in it. But like, if you look at that group, they got I the like numbers all the players and the quality, And they got the yeah. numbers and the quality in midfield. The one place they don't That's have the numbers say. is in attack. We're short that, at least one. 
that's the thing, right? Because depending on how you look at midfield, I think you could say Party, Shaka, Sambi, Elneny, Odegaard, Vieira, maybe a Smith Rowe. Bit of Zinchenko. Right? Um, maybe Zinchenko, right? There's a group there that you could fashion a midfield out of, and it might have to look a little different. I agree to to your point. But then, like, if that's how you're looking at it, and if Pepe leaves especially, it's kind of Jesus, Enkedia, Martinelli, Saka, and Smith Rowe. And, and that does feel, that does feel one light to me. Now, I will say that I think it can be enough. If Enkedia's game is going up and Smith Rowe and Martinelli's game is going up, right? And we think Saka's game it has, if it has anywhere still to go up, is going up. Like it, it could be enough. And you could sprinkle it's, in it's some Vieira, right? He could do yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, maybe bit. you sprinkle in a Marquinhos. Maybe you get you catch lightning in a bottle again with with someone like him. But like, yeah, but it is light. It's definitely it light. Is. The funny thing is, this is what's such a shame. Nicola Pepe, from a pure talent standpoint, is every bit good enough to be in that group and give you something you need. If you could make that work, it would certainly solve the issue of feeling light in that position, but it doesn't seem to work. So, Tim, do you agree ultimately that whatever you want – and by the way, you know, you look at deepest midfielder, just to go on a tangent for a second, I feel like it's a hard position for teams to solve for, right? Whether it's Fabinho, uh, Fernandinho, you know, Conte. There are these sort of iconic players at these clubs that play that position – and then you have clubs that don't have that position solved, who just have a rotating pile of crap there. Or you have those other clubs that, you know, when they don't have that guy, really mix it up and play in a different way. I, I think it's it's a hard position. I mean, it's, I think it's why Spurs went out and got Basuma, obviously, right, to be that guy. And he's he's a very one-dimensional kind of player in that respect. So I think it's interesting to, to look at certain positions and say a lot of teams struggle to solve them. Striker is one, maybe the base of your midfield is the other. So, Tim, wh- where where do you go? What, what, let me ask it this way. If I was to say to you on August 31st, we've really had the window we needed, are there a couple of moves that you'd say, do this one, it's good, do these two, it's great, or something like that that you regard as as the work still to be done? Yeah, sure. So I, I think the two, I'd look, and, and I, don't, I don't think there's a world in which they both happen, is, yeah, another left eight, brilliant, whether it's Tielemans or or whoever, and by the way, we've really settled quickly into the idea of Tielemans playing as a left eight, even though he's never really played there before, but there's clearly yeah. a reason why why we've made that target. Um, and, and yeah, an, another forward, um, p- particularly one who can play through the centre, um, given that Jesus and Inketia, that's, you know, that's that's a, a risk going through a season with two. I, I, I think those are the, the, like, the really ideal ones. I think if pushed, I'd rather go with another forward, um, to be honest. But again, to Paul's point, Fabio Vieira, could he play on the right? Like, potentially. Could he play left eight? Looks like it. So he's he's almost like a, he's almost like a slightly lower level Zinchenko, if you know what I mean. Like, Zinchenko's probably going to start quite a lot, whereas Vieira's probably going to be in that layer underneath the starting eleven. But with the potential to back up, you know, Erdegaard, Saka and Xhaka at the same time. So... You know, there's a fair amount of adaptability, but yeah, I'd love I'd love a backup six who does who does what Thomas Party does. Um, you know, and and I I think um, for me to like summon up an absolute preference out of that lot, I'd, I'd have to be like presented with the options if that makes sense. So if you're giving me like let's say a choice between Hafinha as a right winger, which obviously isn't going to happen now because he's signed for Barca, um, but you know, like that. 
level of player on the right wing, but then like someone who's quite good at the left eight or someone who's quite, you know, it, it would be dictated by the quality of player. If we could get a top quality player in any of those positions, I, I'd be very much swayed by that. I do think the squad could do with one more. But to your point, Elliot, I do think that potentially we could hold on till January as well. And look, January is there. I, I hate this idea that you don't use the January market. You absolutely can and should. And actually, I think a club like Arsenal should use it more because you tend to get less competition um, at that time of year as well. It gives albeit. me no pleasure to say it, Tim, but the difference between top four last season was Spurs using it effectively and yep. Arsenal not. Yep. I mean, I, I, I and I... I know why 100%. we didn't, but that's the reality. 100%, exactly. So, yeah, I, I think... Um, but, yeah, uh, let me say that as a prediction. If we don't make another signing before the end, like significant signing before the end of the window, I think we definitely will, like probably one in January. In fact, I think it will be an either-or. Either we'll add one in the last week of the window or we'll add one in January. Um, but I think before the end of the season, there will be one other player in, is my prediction. This is the one thing I'm curious to see. If you remember, Arsene Wenger sort of lost his edge a little bit in the last decade. And he went with the line, if I buy this player, I kill this player. Remember, it was, I, I kill this player. He loved those young players. He didn't want to block their path. And he got a lot out of that trust he put into them. But he probably should have blocked their path in some cases or, or given them more competition. I, I don't think Arteta's scared to bring that competition in. I, I, I think... A young manager with a lot to prove. Our Arson was in a different phase of his career. I think that the player is there that's a, a really good starter-level talent that makes us better. Does it mean Martinelli will have to up his game to get minutes? Or does it mean that, you know, uh, um, an Odegaard might be under threat? Probably not an Odegaard, but, you know, a Shaka might be under threat or a, maybe it's an Odegaard. I don't think he'll be scared to make that move or protect his players. And I... I I have often worried, oh, if we get this player, this player is going to move down the pecking order. You kind of have to be willing to do that because the goal isn't to develop the players. The goal is to develop the squad and make the team better. And hopefully you do both. Because, I, you know, I don't think it's impossible that you can buy a really good player and one of the young players leapfrogs him anyway. And that's a great thing if it happens. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see what we do, and, and Paul, I know you want to weigh in here, so I, I'm, I, I want to get you to come back in on this, but I, I do think that the perfect window is two more signings. It includes an attacker and a midfielder. The reason I find Tielemans interesting is I think he can play the left eight in the way we deploy it, but in the absence of a, a party, I think a midfield three that's Odegaard, Tielemans plus one, maybe that one is Shaka, retains a lot of the qualities that we lose without a player like him. Um, and a lot of the senior experience qualities that we lose if a party goes out and a Sambi comes in or a Vieira comes in or, you know, whoever it might be. So uh, Obviously, Elneny gives you that seniority, but you lose some of the attacking capability and versatility they provide. So, um, sorry, just a couple of thoughts that I had there. Let's, let's wrap up with your final thoughts on this, though. For you, an attacker and a midfielder, like I said, I think the perfect window, one of the two, a very, very good window, none of the two, to me, we can still go achieve our goals, but it leaves a lot hanging on, I think, a bit of chance. Yeah, I'd be shocked if we don't get it forward. That's a slight overstatement. Uh, certainly be shocked if we don't push hard for a forward. Uh, it's just, it's too, that's the area we're light. Um, and it's clear Vieira is in a transition 
season or at least a transition six months the wording around that has been quite clear that he'll need time to adapt he needs to build up he could play a little bit he can play some leagues so to me we're definitely light that's the one area of the pitch where you'd say compared to a a city a chelsea a liverpool and what they would do at this point they'd put another serious forward in there we we've too many Vieira could work out smith row fitness might be there uh everybody might stay fit like you need another serious ombre up there you need another forward option uh center forward option you need proper backup for saka not a maybe some guy could do it and jesus could also do that job in his spare time and we've five subs i mean it's just crying out and the the point i did want to come back on is the El Neni point because it is critical. Is it just me? Like uh, I don't. I didn't think El Neni was good enough for the backup position when we re-signed him. But is it just me, um, or is he like looking like he's better? That he's grown. Call it confidence. Call it this. Call it that. Call it the other. So has he actually got better? It feels like he has. It could just be a, a bit of a preseason bump too. But feels like. He's growing into it, and we're he's learning us, and we're learning him, and he's getting a bit more of his his original confidence back when he used to actually play some football, not just keep it ticking around. And if we have if around him is say Ben White, uh, Saliba, Gabriel, Zinchenko, Chaka uh, uh, to one side, Saka, etc., Tommy Yasu in the lineup instead of Ben, like. That's a lot of really good footballers around you. And your job at that point is to feed guys who are in a slightly better position than you who can do even more damage with the ball, as opposed to last season when two or three of his outballs were to players like a Cedric or a this or a that um, or a light option or a Sambi coming up to speed or, uh, you know, Nuna Tavares squirt ball out to the wing. Like you put five or six high technical players like a Zinchenko in and around him, filling out that two, three, five going forward. El Nenny doesn't have to do a, it would be nice if he could do a party, but he doesn't need to do a party. Mm. Paul, I want to, I want to say you've laid that out very clearly and you didn't convince me. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, no, it's like, I don't hate the player. I think I think he is a very, very good player. And it's funny, right? Because when we play Europa League or when we play a, a lower level of football, like you see the player that's in there. But I look at the Newcastle game and I say, you know, the player's in his 30s. He is who he is. I, I'm not saying he can't improve and he can't get better. And I'm not saying he's useless either, by the way. This isn't a binary. It's not he's useless or he's a starter. I think if he's a player who's starting 20 Premier League games for us, we are in trouble. If he's a player who's starting six to eight. Depending who's around him, though. Like, look at the Newcastle game in terms of the shape of and the state and the level of the people who were around him. So we might be able to cut the number of games where El Nenny is the weak spot in the chain down to five or six or seven. If for those 20 games he's playing, he's got Zinchenko, he's got... Uh, Tom Yasu, he's got Saliba or White, he's got, you, you know. And the thing that's hard, and I think this is actually hard with the Shaka debate, there are players who the things they f- actually do aren't bad. It's the things they don't do or cannot do 
that are a problem, but it's hard to evaluate things that aren't happening, right? It's kind of where we struggled with the Lacazette debate. He wasn't shooting, but he was doing other valuable stuff, but it was the not shooting that was a problem. And when a player doesn't do something, it's not an error, right? Like if I give the ball away in my defensive third, it's an error. But if I keep it ticking over and it's safe and I just never make a hurtful pass, there's nothing for you to criticize that happened. And I think that makes it harder. It's harder to criticize players whose flaws are the things they don't do. Sure. Because until you see someone there do it, like when Thomas Party plays, you see all the stuff that Mohamed Elneny can't do. You know what I mean? But when Mohamed sure. Elneny is playing, he doesn't do a lot wrong, if you follow how I'm trying to explain it's, this. It's like Ramsdale it's and him. Leno, right? Ramsdale came Great in yep. and was mm-hmm. like, oh, wow, he does a whole load of shit that Leno doesn't do. Or, or I was thinking, yep. like, as an analogy, a goalkeeper who never comes off his line, like, doesn't make a mistake, but like the classic Shea Given syndrome, but never makes a mistake because he doesn't do anything and would prevent a lot more goals if he came off his line. It's, it's the same thing. I didn't think goalkeeper was an issue for us until I saw one who could pass. And I was wrong because I wasn't seeing the things we weren't getting. That's hard, right? I mean, the Jesus-Lacazette thing's a little different because like everybody saw by the end what we weren't getting with Lacazette. But look, let's leave it there. There's more time to discuss this, and I think there's meat on the bone, but we can we can get to it. Look, it's, it's Sevilla and the Emirates Cup at the weekend. We'll have an instant reaction for that. Um, we'll have a full pod on Monday that will be our full season preview pod, so we probably won't actually do a Sevilla pod specifically. I mean, we may start with just little bits if there's something there. You can look to the instant reaction for that, but I want to make sure before the Palace game that we get a season preview pod. And I think Thursday, it'll be hard to get that out um, because we'll just be previewing the game. So a little bit of scheduling challenge there. We'll do the best we can. And then um, Tim, you know, and everybody listening, I guess, who's invested, good luck on Sunday for the women's Euro final, England, Germany. My recollection is that always goes well for England, right? Yeah, England versus Germany at Wembley. Um, it 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 has it, it bodes a little bit well historically, but no, it will be a, a it will be a massive, massive game, massive game for women's football. Just massive game in its own right, and um, the two teams. It, it's the right final as well. It is the two teams who have Great. been the best in the tournament, without a doubt. Uh, going head to head, and you've also got something interesting there where both the leaders for the Golden Boot, Beth Mead and Alexandra Pop, going head to head. Um, at, at the moment, Beth Mead would take it um, if they're level on goals because she's got more assists. But you know, it it doesn't. Um, yeah, the, the the nature of the contest is is really defined by that, and that shows you how good these teams have been in this tournament. Can I add some insight? On at least you won't be getting. Yeah, yeah. Please, please. Unli- uh, unlikely for me, but to add some insight on women's football. So I was uh, way on a business trip. My company is a German. Uh, company my boss is german uh, one of my other colleagues is german and while we were away suddenly they started talk about, talking about football they never talk about football um they only talk about the football when the world cup is on and the men's team is playing in the world cup uh, my boss had his wife texting him goal uh, uh sorry goal status change after goal status change in the Germany-France match. Germany is going to be massively up for this on their side in terms of interest, uh, national passion. Um, It's going to be a great, to Tim's point, from the other side of the coin, it's going to be a huge event for women's football in Europe. The Germans are so up for this. 
it's it's really exciting. Yeah, the thing that I think is nice is we're sort of at a point where we're even past that kind of discourse, and now we can just say the football's been a hell of a lot of fun. The quality has been good. It's great to watch, and people are interested, not because they feel <laughs> harangued into being interested or guilted into it or because it's the right thing to do ethically. Turns out it's just excellent football that's a hell of a lot of fun to watch, and I've been enjoying it where I've been able to catch it myself. So I hope everybody will uh, enjoy that final. Enjoy certainly Arsenal and the Emirates Cup on Saturday. And then uh, I cannot believe the season is here, but the season is here. So we look forward to another season together. I believe our seventh um, as a podcast, and we just love you for being here so much. And I, I think whatever it has to bring, it's it's going to be really exciting. By the way, we will also do uh, something. It's still being worked out specifically what it will be, but we will be doing some content around the All or Nothing show. I, I think it's just, if you hate it, you hate it, and you don't have to listen to the stuff. But I think it's going to have enough interesting issues and and talking points there that if we do a special thing on it we can still just analyze the football on the main pods what i don't want to have to do is spend half of every main pod talking all or nothing because i think that that will be at odds with each other my feeling is that we will probably do the all or nothing content on the main feed though so it will be free for everybody maybe the occasional patreon thing there just because we got a calendar to fill but so that that's a little behind the scenes information you didn't care about or didn't need just to lengthen the podcast to our normal uh uh what is it? 80 minutes. There you go. Okay. Tim's on Twitter. Super thanks, Tim. My pleasure as always. Paul's on Twitter. Pause my pants. Thanks, Paz. Woo! For the none of you that have made it to this point of the podcast, Clive will be back on a podcast in the very near future. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. We love you. And we'll talk to you after Arsenal Time Transfer. No, no.